0: Yeah, or at least a segue. Oh, and we're live. How
1: to, how to put up with all my crap, right? <laughs> All right, we're live. Yeah, the God of Vicious Podcast One Sixty Nine. You guys, that was a good one. Um, this week <laughs> we have Sentinel. He's got a super amazing and educational YouTube channel. Thanks a lot for joining us, boss. Happy to be here. We also have uh, Marty. Hey, how's it going? Oh, we got
0: for a Hey, good evening, everybody. It's going to be a fun show tonight. We're going to talk about bugs and controls and stuff. Yeah.
1: We got JR Token from Cannabis. What's up, everybody? Hey, JR. Hey, what's up? What's up, man? It was a fun having a session with you on Saturday,
2: Saturday, Sunday, whatever day that was, Sunday. Yeah, it was good meeting. It was good being able to link up.
1: Yeah, man. Always good times hanging out with you and Fish Ganja guy.
2: Yeah, I know. You like Fish's new place? Not bad, huh? Oh, yeah. We we filled it up with smoke quite well. Yeah, we did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Test it out as smoke detectors. Make sure they work, you know?
2: That's right.
1: Alrighty, what do you well... Get? Um uh Xanthana, why don't you tell us a little bit about your U- youtube channel and what you're all about? You're one of the the coolest YouTube channels that I'm aware of in terms of pest management. And you got so much good education and good footage on your channel. Uh, uh please tell us more about it.
3: Well, sure. So um well, for those who don't know, my my name's Matthew. I, I don't have a problem with going by Xenthanol or anything like that, but um my YouTube channel I started around in twenty fourteen and um mainly it's a it's a passion project because I, I was just so used to working in like the floricultural space and I've been working with cannabis for about nine years now but more focus on cannabis for the last like five or six and um, I just felt like there was a there was a a lack of information with regards to like pest management like like organic holistic, integrated pest management strategy. I mean, even tra- even more traditional crops, well, I wouldn't say that hemp is a non-traditional, or cannabis is a non-traditional crop, but in even uh, uh, crops that had not been prohibited for a long time, like people are not just not getting into IPM as much as they could be. Um, and so in the cannabis space, it was both kind of, it was disappointing to see some people who just didn't really care. Um, and it was refreshing to see over time, how much that has kind of changed in the last few years. Um, And so people have been really hungry for this information. And uh, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, well, nobody's going to care about this when I get older, I should find something else to do. But turns out that because not a lot of people care about bug stuff, and it's important, it makes you really important, especially in California, where it's an agricultural mecca,
1: Yeah, so tell us more about some of the uh, content that you have.
3: Well, one video I'm actually working on currently um, that will be posted in a few days possibly even tonight if I get it all done is uh, it's about uh, a pest that's going to be I think it's going to be a problem if we don't if we aren't if we don't work proactively and that's the um, the spotted lantern fly, which if you haven't heard um, it's it's a, from China and Vietnam area of the world and it really prefers Chinese sumac, which is a really common sort of ornamental tree that's pretty much everywhere in the United States. And this lanternfly feeds on like over 70 species of plants, especially like grapes and hops and also cannabis as well as like like apple trees. Um, in Pennsylvania, they've already caused like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. And they're in four states in the United States right now. Delaware, uh, New Jersey, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Um, and they've been here since 2014. And my big concern is that it's going to be a problem for hemp um, going forward if we aren't able to contain and control it.
1: Yeah, I, I never... did know. I had never heard about spotted lanternfly being a cannabis problem. This is, this is really interesting. Uh, I know I've seen a lot of um, septoria, which especially at the scale and a couple of different species of septoria this year and a lot of new viruses that I hadn't seen, um, especially as well.
3: Yeah, I, I recently talked about the... Uh, well, the thing about it is that I haven't seen any... I've seen two reports, both in Chinese. I like, shul some zhong wen. Um, Which was terrible pronunciation. But uh, I do speak some Chinese. I used to speak it better, but now I don't. Um, uh, But both of those uh, reports are in Chinese. And they were, one of them is from 1945 or 46. I don't remember off the top of my head. And uh, they found it on hemp. Um, So my concern is that, like, this is just a latent problem waiting to happen. But I haven't, but to be fair, I haven't seen any recent reports of it on cannabis in a big, in a bit, in a big way, but I feel like it will be a problem in the future, perhaps under the right conditions. Um, and there's more, uh, I also recently talked about the lettuce, lettuce chlorosis virus, which is a virus of many different plants and they found it infecting cannabis in Israel actually. And it's vectored by the silver leaf white fly, which is really, really prominent in California and actually the whole world for that matter. So how do we kill
1: those flies? So, so tell us tell us more about this lettuce chlorosis virus? I've never even heard of it.
3: So lettuce chlorosis virus is um it was discovered in Southern California in the late, if I remember right, the late 80s. Yeah. And um, around the same time that Bemisia Tabasi, the silver leaf white fly, was becoming a problem. Um and the silver leaf whitefly has a lot of different predators and ways to control it. But uh, certain populations see, it's a species complex. Actually, it's actually a, it's actually a group of a bunch of different identical populations that have specific traits and you can't really tell by looking at them uh, who's who. Uh, but certain populations are very resistant to pesticides. Other populations are the same population. Rather, the Q, what used to be called the Q biotype, uh, but is now referred to by its, um, by its or- origin uh, moniker, which is like Mediterranean one or something like that. Or maybe that's B, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that there are lots of ways to combat it. You can use uh, natural chemistries uh, for those that they aren't resistant to. You can use entomopathogenic fungi like Buvaria bassiana, which kills it by infecting it. But uh, the lettuce sclerosis virus, um, the whitefly fly only has to feed on your plant for like an hour to transmit it. So even if you do kill the white flies, you're still g- likely to be infected by this incurable virus. At least it's incurable currently in all hosts that are known for it. And it can cause like total crop failure. So... That's going to, I think, be a big problem for California cultivation in the future and possibly other parts of the world. In fact, it's possible people are dealing with it currently, but don't know to look for it because it's only recently been like as of like August. The report just came out, Uh, but they found it in cannabis in Israel for like the last three years. So since 2017. And so it's possible that it's been in other circulations. I mean, it must have been before I got to Israel.
1: Now, is there any way for people to, at home to have any way of telling when something's viral, other than, you know, picture identification? Is there a way they can do anything through any type of sampling or anything um, that would help them, um, you know, better evaluate what's going on?
3: Very good question. I think that um, there are ways that the, that somebody can sometimes viruses and especially creamy viruses. Uh, crinoviruses like the lead sclerosis virus can have, um, like different, like specific traits that are visual, that are, that are apparent. Um, and coronaviruses also interact with other viruses and can cause really odd symptomologies that aren't typical for either of the virus. Um, and they're even competitive against each other, which is kind of interesting to consider.
1: Uh, but It reminds you almost of that Three Stooges syndrome from The Simpsons. I don't know if you remember that episode, but
3: remind me again how that part how that went, because I am. Oh,
1: he had uh, Mr. Burns had so many diseases that the different diseases were counteracting each other.
3: Oh yeah, that's right. I remember. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sometimes that actually happens in plants, though.
3: Yeah, it does actually, or like sometimes you get a situation where like because when you think about it, you know, pests, they're in it for themselves. They're not like on the bad guy team and they're all like sharing in the bad guy loot. No, like uh, a pest that cuts off another pest from, you know, infesting its host can potentially reap more resources. And so adaptations to that end can be useful. Um, But like in other cases, for example, you have like mites and aphids and like they both suck plant juices out. However, they both, they have different like ways of doing that. And they also have different ways of shutting down the plant host immune response. And so sometimes even you have organisms that will turn on the uh, defense pathways for different pests when they feed. So like, I think if I remember the report correctly, uh, I don't want to be misquoting anything, but I think it was a two spot spider mites on a plant. Um, I think it was a ra- Arabidopsis, which is Thale cress, which is used in a lot of experiments as a model organism. And when it fed on the, on the, on the plant, it actually made the plant have an immune response similar to what it would not for spider mites, but for, um, I think, either aphids or white flies or maybe it was white flies who were doing this. But my point being is that it's it turned on the defenses for a totally different pest and, and not for itself. So in that way, it can be sort of funny to consider uh, two pests kind of going at it indirectly like that.
1: Well, and it also makes you wonder how many cannabino- or uh, chemovar profiles are actually a result of a virus or some other secondary infection and not actually the 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 regular expression and it would make a lot of sense why you have such radical differences in chemovar expression given the region because the viral expression would be radically different
3: not only viruses but also like yeah absolutely endophytes
1: I, I,
4: yeah
3: yeah, or, or organisms that are just living kind of as far as we can tell anyways neutrally uh, but you know the vast majority of microbes are not culturable so it's 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 a wild wild world out there and we're not really you know we're only seeing through it like you would look out of a window we don't really have the whole picture um but with the right angles we can get a good perspective i suppose maybe build a few more windows
4: <laughs> well, i mean it's a it's a great reason to have a, a microscope and be able to to look through the, your own window to your own grow right because there's no i mean there's no substitute to observing the grow environment that your your plant is growing in or or the plant itself right I mean that's ultimately we can't always like measure everything in comparison to someone else that you know might not be growing in anywhere close to the same environment and obviously not an identical one and sometimes now with the beauty of technology they might be on the other side of the globe um, you know, growing completely different genetics. And sometimes I feel like we, we put too much, too much comparison in, in what we're trying to do. Like even though there may be similarities we can draw from it, I feel like we, we take it too far sometimes.
0: I think the similarities would be the fact that, that we have good growth techniques, but environments create different mm-hmm. objectives or, or, or problems.
4: You know yeah world. i do think that yeah. indoors you probably have you know maybe some more consistency that can be created across the world but outdoors you know it's like he's talking about that you know there's a there's a metric ton of microbes that you that you can't culture or observe and we find and identify different ones all the time so um you know in those different mixtures and combinations we know that uh, you know, trigger different responses from the you know the genetics of the plant. and People growing from different seeds. There's just a certain amount of uh, observing your your own grows and your own environments that that just, in my opinion, gives you more accurate data than going out and comparing to the web.
1: Um. The so so have you seen any other viruses? Um, when I was just out in Oregon. And I saw an an Anheuser-Busch hemp field, yes, that's a real thing, Um, that was next to a a soybean field, and they were ravaged pretty hardcore by a a leaf curl virus uh, that supposedly was transferred by leaf hoppers uh, from the the soybeans to the hemp. And that's not, that was the first time I had ever seen that. I got some good documentation pictures, and there was both a, a mosaic virus and a Leaf curl that were being attributed to pest
2: transfer from soybeans. That was going to be my. That was the question I was going to ask. Um, if you have a, a a vermin or a bug with a, a virus and it takes a bite into your plant, what and vi- in, and in, in, in it's infected with the virus. What is hap- What happens inside the plant? And is it does it affect the entire plant or is there places where xylem and phloem? don't reach the plant and are those areas safe or can you kind of tell us about how that works
0: entirely. or does the or does the virus affect the plant at all
2: it atti-
1: entirely depends on the virus and and the viral load and what other microbials are exposed to that I mean there's there's quite a bit of documentation I know Kevin Jodry talked about it and a couple of other uh, uh, Alan from uh, uh she talked about it um, uh, on the um, uh, labs uh, suppressing viral load and uh, many different types of uh, viruses, including that, um, uh, what is it, that, that hemp or, um, the hop latent virus, um, uh, and using that to clean, uh, strains from that hop latent virus. So, um, you know, there's some documentation for that, but, but a lot of these new viruses, we're only just seeing cross crop transfer for the first time in the last one to three years. And there's just no documentation.
3: It's uh, a, that, that was really helpful right there. What you said, about microbial load, and it depends on whether or not the virus is transmitted persistently or semi persistently, and even that is sort of a contentious way to characterize it. We don't even know what part of the insect specifically, uh, where I think it's in the case of semi persistent uh, virus transmission, it's usually in the the um, the front part, usually in the salivary gland area, or like, but sometimes things are kept in the mid gut, sometimes things are in the hind gut, sometimes, you know, like with aphids, for example, aphids are the biggest vector of viruses, of phyto, phyto um, viruses anyways. Um, and like, they also have a really in, uh, inseparable relationship with microbes. Many of these microbes are important they're integral to their ability to like feed on phloem for example if they 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 live on they live in um special uh fat cells called bacteriocytes and if those bacteria are killed then the aphid will die right afterwards um and so like it's interesting to consider what the ramifications of certain microbial interactions are you, you know like even inside the its own its own host like you know, with viruses, like I don't know, some people, most people don't know this, but like malaria, for example, the plasmodium that causes malaria, it's not great for the mosquito either. The mosquito's not chilling out, you know, like getting bad guy points. Like, I, like, I mean, I keep bringing this up, but for so many people, there's this, in my opinion, um, uh, incorrect way to look at pest management and it's very antagonistic and it doesn't really I think do justice to the the sheer nuance and complexity of ecological interactions and you know like there there are no bad guys and good guys I'm sure you guys know it's just that like you know sometimes things work out where one's a vector for the other but it might really perform better even if it didn't have that virus you know swimming around in its gut.
1: Well, for instance, Fusarium and Botrytis, both are endophytes that are, are perfectly fine to be there in the right levels and with the right species, but when the ratio goes off, it starts mauling the plant. You know, and there's a lot, of, a lot of documentation depending on the species on that. It's, it's, that was one of the things that really blew me away when I was really learning about endophytes was like a lot of the species that I've traditionally thought of as pathogens actually are, are present in the plant tissue all the time.
3: Absolutely, I just did a video on my channel about um, about endophytes in grapes and how, you know, there were just so many different families represented. It was interesting for me to mull over like which bacterial and fungal. There are even what are called endophy- endohyphal bacteria. So you know, people talk in cannabis spaces and polyculture spaces about whether it's better to have. Like a bacterially dominated soil or a fungally dominated soil. But, like, uh, you know, like if you have endohyphal bacteria in your fungi, do you count that in the bacteria or do you count that in the fungi? Like, it, in some cases, it gets to the point where it's like that song where there's like, there's a toad on a log, there's a bump on a toad on a log in the middle of the swamp, you know, it just is turtles all the way down to use a meme phrase
0: but you also have to go into the fact that you know there like you said there's good and bad. So if it's a if it, again it, yeah we're we're really delving into the fungi and the microbial end of it now more than ever. Um, so wouldn't you agree with that though cuz you said there was well you kind of said well there's really not anything bad but we do look at there's good and bad.
3: We do have to look at it. You know, we do have to simplify it a little bit. I'm not trying to like backpedal I guess but it's right like you know at some point we do have to draw a line and what's good or bad for a cultivator is um, on a spectrum Uh, symbiosis is a spectrum Um, you have organisms that can uh, you know in the same generation or the same individual can go from being parasitic or pathogenic to being beneficial based on this environment based on um, other microbes present like you were talking about earlier about uh, endophytes or, or whomever it was, but I guess I mean you all. Um, but at the same time, over generations and over like evolutionary pressures, like an organism that's beneficial absolutely um, can go and become more commensalic and um, even free living in some cases uh, where it wasn't before or go from free living to becoming an obligate. Uh, pathogen, and then possibly even becoming a symbiont. That happens a lot too. And when that happens, a lot of bacteria, or a lot of not bacteria, but organisms that are um, symbiotic in this way, they, uh, their genome becomes reduced. It's very common for this to happen. And it's because and oftentimes, processes that they used to do internally, um, become sort of outsourced, to the physiology of the host or to other microbes in the uh, organism. It's pretty fascinating to me how that sort of thing happens.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Oh, yeah.
1: So, so um, for, for people, maybe to roll back a little bit, for people that aren't aware, what what um, how do people tell if they have a viral infection in their plants and not a, an insect or a deficiency? I think that's maybe a, a good question
5: to ask.
3: there matthew oh Oh, sorry about that i guess my mic was off um (laughs) (laughs) i was um i was saying that uh it definitely depends on the virus um like you were saying before uh certain viruses have certain symptoms some viruses have no symptoms like the cannabis cryptic virus which i did a, a video on then you also have um, phytoplasmas, which are like a special kind of bacteria that are also transmitted by uh, leafhoppers, and um, uh, they're they're uh, they cause like what's called witches brooming, uh, which is found in other plants too for 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 phytoplasmas, and they cause like really weird chaotic growth and weird growth. I'm sure you guys have seen cannabis cultivars like on social media, perhaps. Where people are like, "Wow, dude, look at this!" And it's like a fasciated, you know, plant, and the stems all flat, and the flower is like, uh, like bilaterally symmetrical or whatever, or unilaterally, um, and uh, that's cool. But that's also caused. That can be caused by a genetic issue. That can be caused by just it being polyploid. It can. Co- it can be caused by a pathogen or hormone imbalance, and you really don't know unless you do like an analysis. And I think there was another question. Uh, that was asked is like what can they do to assess that and what they can do uh, in some places anyways um, and your mileage may vary I don't know every state and every province of the world but uh, if you can get like somebody to do like a bioassay particularly like a, if you do suspect it to be a virus you could, you could possibly get a plant virologist to do it and in places where Maybe hemp is legal. There might be precedent to um, have like the univer- your local university extension come out and take a look. I'm sure somebody would love to write a paper about it.
0: That's a good point. Yep, your local. We always 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 tell people that. You know, they ask why do how do I do this? I say well don't ask me, ask your local county agent, and that would lead to your local extension university that does agriculture.
1: So tell us more about this, this cryptic virus you're talking about.
3: Sure. So the cannabis cryptic virus is, um, it gets its name because it's cryptic. There, is no, there are no real symptoms to it. Um, it's passable vertically, so from parent to offspring. And it can also be, it can be passed both from uh, uh, a male's pollen uh, getting into a female and then passing it that way, or it can be from a female being infected and bearing the uh, the seeds in both cases, uh, it can be passable this way, which is kind of like the ultimate evolutionary like jackpot, right? Because then you guarantee that your your uh, your progeny has a host in that way. Not, it's it's right. a lot more rare than people might think. Like if
4: anything survives, you survive, right? I mean, either you're you're killing everything, or I'm coming with, basically, right? basically,
3: right? And that's how that symbiosis happens too, because over time. Uh, you know mutations occur and that sort of a thing and you know then you become stuck with your host and then maybe you have maybe you perform a function you know that doesn't even matter until like this a new organism comes in and decides to like eat you and oh no like turns out the virus infects like a microbe in its gut and kills it like and that would confer a huge um, advantage a fitness advantage you know and that that's how that happens I mean, that's one of the ways it happens at
2: least. So we have like beneficial microbes in the way of like fungi and bacteria. Has there ever been a beneficial virus?
3: I only know of one example. Um, And it was, it's, uh, what was it called? It's in the cannabis cryptic virus. It's funny you mentioned that because it was actually in the cannabis cryptic virus video where I mentioned it because um, it was somewhat related. I think it was in the same family. I think it was partitiviridae. But anyways, if, uh, my point is that they found that it was a virus of white clover. I think it's called like white clover virus one or something. Um, is this the one that gave it THC? No, um, I, I believe that what you're referring to was some genetic material that's left over from like an ancient sort of like uh like for example in our dna like about one to 1.5 or two percent of our dna is viral from long long way before we became you know species as as or even as great apes Um, and uh (laughs) arc genes are important for um our short-term memory for example and those were from viruses long 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 time ago
4: so was it wasn't there an article not that long ago that talked about that, that it was a, that the presence of THC in cannabis was a result of a viral infection, like like you're talking about millions of years ago or whatever. Not
1: only not only is THC and cannabinoid synthesis a result of a viral infection, the fact that we have boys and girls of anything, the male, the the, the genes responsible for making a creature male or female has also been linked to viral DNA.
4: Oh, so like separate, you mean as opposed to like...
1: The fa- yeah, the ability to exchange DNA in that male-female construct even oh, at, t- at t- yeah, microbial t- t- level. T- t-
0: the ability to be hermaphroditic.
1: No, not hermaphroditic. Like having male... Being a boy or a girl going from being a...
0: Oh, a well, well... Yeah. Uh, hmm. You know... Certainly... Sexual you, could, to
3: you, could, sexual... you could even go further and say that like... Pathogens like... Uh, like for example, the like the defense pathways of plants is like ancient. Um, You know, there's been evolution and, you know, there's updates to that system, but, you know, uh, selection pressures from back before plants were, you know, no more than like, um, like algal like predecessors in the oceans in the primordial oceans, you know, interactions and selection pressures from pathogens and other uh, microbes started there. Certainly the same could be said for, you know, the most primordial organisms that, you know, eventually became eukaryotes and everything after.
0: Absolutely. i got a question real quick, uh, just a quick one, because the, the, the question was kind of general, even though we're talking about cannabis and plants and agriculture, but isn't polio, is polio a virus or not? The polio virus, yeah. So it does have, it actually has been proven lately, and that's another, that, probably another show, but it has been proven to kill uh, brain tumors and stuff like that. And then, you know, where people, you know, it, it actually, uh, the, the, then the, um, uh, it, it was attacked uh, by your immune, the immune system and, and uh, killed the, well, it killed the tumors and then they use Avastin to allow it to be killed, which is a whole nother story. But I was just, I just wanted to, just for the answer to the general question of is there, are there any viral, you know, anything viral that is positive, uh, you know, polio vaccine has been used to, to kill brain tumors.
1: There's, there's viruses in your digestive tract as well that have been, you know, symbiotically documented, I guess.
4: But yeah, I, I totally interrupted you there too. So you were you were talking about the other one, the other example you talked about in your video, and I, I interrupted you there. So if you want, if you want to recap on that, sorry for sidetracking you so much. No, that's okay. I thought the questions
3: were really cool. I um, really enjoy g- talking about heady topics like this. Um, uh, but yeah, no, just to kind of sum up what, what we were just talking about. Yeah, there there's definitely interactions that are like not obvious at first and perhaps are even novel first time we've ever like observed them and possibly the first time they've even occurred where um, they had beneficial effects. And, 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 you know, it's like, maybe it's only like a select, like uh, population of a certain microbe or under very specific conditions does this happen. you know, it's kind of like it was science when we, when we like do things with like really extreme temperature or really extreme gravity or really extreme magnetism, like the laws of physics start to like change in a vacuum in a very in very small like when we do it in a very small space, but like though you know you can't really necessarily do those things uh, in mass. And similarly, this is the case like biologically. Uh, you know things can happen sort of uniquely like that um, uh, in small in small situations, but they might not ever expand out unless they're um, really ecologically fit for some reason or another. But cannabis cryptic virus, again, um, well, here's the cool thing about that that's relevant, is that um, the research report that I read about them, or the two that I read about about it, um, seems to imply that it's possible that the cannabis cryptic virus was actually, originally, long time ago, uh, a pathogen of or maybe just a microbe that existed inside of a a fungal um, pathogen and that that fungal pathogen infecting cannabis or its um, uh, ancestors, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous when talking in this way that perhaps over time, you know, this sort of pathogenic interaction um, kind of allowed the virus to move hosts and that perhaps due to some sort of weird event or circumstance, this, um, this movement, uh, you know, kind of like kept the virus in the plant and it didn't really have very much effect on it, but here it is. And because um, they didn't think that it was uh, uh, transmitted when they, uh, by, um, by uh, a pest or anything like that. It seemed, it seemed to just only transmit vertically and not horizontally really. And I mean, you know, the amount of research on it is still kind of lacking at this point. But I just found that kind of fascinating concept, just like in general, right? For sure,
0: man, that's awesome.
2: That's well, really cool. Yeah, so, I think- uh- <clears throat> go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Go ahead, JR. I just think it's crazy that the virus can uh, can interject DNA into our into our species and and change maybe certain aspects of our physiology uh, just from its influence.
3: I mean, it's really kind of cool. I I think it's really fascinating. It is pretty crazy, right? Like um, with microbes. Oh, sorry.
5: Well, well, wait a minute.
0: It's got its own DNA and all, right? So, I mean, anything that's introduced to your body could change your body.
2: Can't kind of change your code though, your DNA code. Not gonna change
1: your DNA. No, no. Very few things of their ability to incorporate into your DNA and then use. I was saying
0: body. that each, each, and even a virus has a DNA code, right?
1: Yeah, but yeah, but it's not gonna incorporate itself into your. Yeah. because you, gotta, right. you don't get the flu, or or like some other thing automatically. Like yeah, but things DNA. are stored in your
0: fatty Maybe.
4: acid and stuff like that. Well, yeah. like even us as humans, like we require a whole shitload of equipment just to be able to. Modify DNA. So it's not like, you know, it's like i
0: yield like on the a, DNA statement. I'm just talking about that anytime anything's introduced to your body, it was, it could have a lasting effect, be stored in your fatty tissue or whatever. That's a good point. I
3: mean, like, um, you know, like the chemistry of something, like some people are, you know, and some people, their sensitivity is on a spectrum too. Like, um, you know some people are allergic to things that other people aren't for example and like your statement about like with viruses like organ microbes in general like some of them have um, like plasmids and stuff and they're able to and in- they need to inject uh, genetic code in order to populate themselves like with viruses or um, like even mycorrhizae like when they uh, interact with their hosts they have a Um, and I always use this term, a three-handed handshake or a three-way handshake rather. Um, you know, where like the plant produces compounds that signal for the microbe. Oh, Hey, this is a host go, you know, and maybe it it moves towards the plant and then it exudes compounds and what are called nodule, uh, factors, if they're mycorrhizae and if they're, um, rhizobia, if they're like bacteria that fix nitrogen in, um, legumes than they do nod factors and there's this like very sophisticated and nuanced like genetic um like modification like alteration of the surface level um structures of the of the plant and that kind of stuff is really amazing to me i often characterize it like um you know, because plants have what's called an innate immune system, and I like to call that immune system 1.0. doesn't mean it's bad. It's still very sophisticated, but they'd lack things that people with an adaptive, well, people, with things with an adaptive immune system have, like humans, like white blood cells, for example. But instead of having their own white blood cells that they produce endogenously, uh, they have mercenaries do it. They, they out-contract for that. They have microbes come in, and so do we. But like, yeah, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's white blood cells for hire. Or they do a bunch of other sorts of things that are useful for the plant.
1: That's really cool. There's so many different things that we're still learning about. And then that doesn't even take into account endophytes and all the things that they do and how they alter the plant's DNA and everything else. And that's a whole other rabbit hole. Well,
4: Steve, weren't you talking about uh, just a couple maybe a few shows ago fuck i don't remember <laughs> they all kind of kind of run together there's been a lot of them now but you were talking about um like exposing uh different cultivars uh to produce like higher levels of certain oh, abenoids is... or terpenes than, know, like, mike... exposing...
0: about... and like yeah. exposing yeah,
1: mike, was... mike west mike west was talking about that about increasing cbl levels uh through the intentional infection of powdery mildew which i thought was completely insane but really cool
0: oh yeah that was real that was really awesome when he was talking about how that turned out That was an accident but they tested it and they found it and as we discussed there's even cbd cbs and, and levels of that that we still haven't even found yet or found a way to find them
5: right so
3: Yeah, I, I, I mean, like, that's probably my favorite, like, aspect of uh, research right now with regards to, like, IPM integra- and other integrated pest management facets that have to do with that sort of interaction, because, like, um, whether it's the formulation of, like, a, a natural chemistry uh, that we want to use, or, like, whether it's understanding that, like, like we mentioned symbiosis and... Um, like viruses and benefits and detriments, but like, for example, in the P. aphid. um, So the P. aphid has the ability to harvest solar energy, not quite the same as photosynthesis, but it is able to harvest solar energy and make it usable as cellular energy. And it's able to do this due to having, have uh, to have virus, um, viral DNA, from like an ancient, ancient, ancient interaction a long, long time ago. Um, It has this really cool ability and it can also biosynthesize carotenoids, which not a lot of animals can do if I remember right. But what it also has are bacteria and some of those bacteria are beneficial and a subset of those bacteria have um, themselves um, a particular, um, uh, what's it called? P aphid. APSE or something like that and it's like a particular uh, symbiont that is able to kill parasitic wasp eggs. So when this parasitic wasp comes in and lays an egg in the aphid, there's a symbiont that kills that egg like 60% of the time. And like you know it's 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 like it's just like people don't know that and you know you'll get like in my case as a professional, like you'll get upset or you won't know like man why are these wasps not working they work every other situation what's going on and um you know we don't we wouldn't know that if we didn't do that research and it's it's just one of those really nuanced things that you either know or you don't and you couldn't possibly know it if you didn't like look at it's like genome or something
0: so you're saying you apply it and and it doesn't it doesn't affect it doesn't do the job as much because of this other situation you know the other um uh you know what i'm saying bacteria yeah right right yeah
3: so because this population and aphids are they typically they clonally reproduce at least for all of their life or for most of their life and um yeah so these bacteria are just passed into their clones you know it's essentially the same like it's functionally same the same as like having like a, a genetic modification that modulates their their genes because essentially that's what happens it modify it has its own genome and or like the mitochondria in the cell right like um you know it's it's the mitochondria have their own dna and that's because of um uh that it's 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 believed that mitochondria were a free living microbe you know millions of years ago and um they become they became symbiotic with our you know unicellular uh, ancestors and they they caused the organism to outperform others and here we are still with them after all this time
2: dude that's really wild to me that's really wild i think that's even crazier that we could have the course of our evolution changed dramatically by the influence of these microbes that could completely change the way our species looks, talks, feels and everything. Just blows my mind.
3: Well, you've heard uh, of I think that's called evolution. You've heard you've heard of Toxoplasmosa gondii?
1: No. Yes, yes, the crazy cat lady virus.
3: Bacteria.
2: But yeah. Oh, sorry, bacteria. I have heard of that Fly that has something, a virus, or something that lands on it and then controls the fly. I
4: don't know that one. What's the crazy cat lady bacteria?
0: Yeah, there you go.
3: Yeah, so it's this bacteria, um, and it uh, it's in cats, and it's ironic. It's funny to think about when you consider how much cats are like a meme and people have loved them for so long. And I mean, they, they had, it's thought that cats had a, um, like a beneficial effect for keeping like other pests, a symbiosis, you know, from eating our food stores and that kind of a thing. And, you know, the populations would tolerate each other and, you know, adaptation happened and that's how that went. But um, yeah, these bacteria, what they do is they can, they can populate in other mammals, but I think they can only reproduce in cats. And so they have this great way of, and it's not totally understood all the way, but basically they can rewrite or otherwise uh, heavily manipulate the behavior of like, for example, rats to like not fear or possibly even be attracted to like signals of cats, like their urine. So then that cat kills that rat and then the bacteria gets into the animal because it eats it. And then, you know, you have you have a great happy ending for the bacteria.
1: That's really well, but
3: my point is that, so us as mammals, sorry, I, I didn't put the, the important part. I left you hanging with the detail. So for people, crazy cat lady, right? The idea that maybe people also were infected by this bacteria. It's thought that very many people are, and for some people, maybe the symptoms are mild, and you know, in a lot of cases, it's it's hard to really say if somebody's being like mentally affected by this bacteria. But you know, signs seem to point
4: to probably. Well, just at let least to make sure that. I'm following this, so the suggestion being that the ba- the bacteria is continually produced by the cats populated to the human being the crazy cat lady who's being controlled by the bacteria to like cats
5: yes at least to
4: more cats and buy shit for cats or whatever so, this, I goes, mean, so like, this goes back to the fact that schizophrenia
1: so people that are schizophrenic have like an 80 plus percent chance to be infected with the taxoplasmosis goldii and and which is really <laughs> weird um and, and then you also have the fact that um, and some, some populations in some cities is as high as is almost 90% infection rate um, with, with taxoplasmosis across the entire population. So um, they're, they're, they've done quite a few studies, especially direct, directly linking it to schizophrenia, or at least increased chance of schizophrenia.
3: And here's the part where I make a whole bunch of enemies, because um, like, as somebody who loves the world and the environment and ecology, I have to point out that like, Here's the other thing, cats kill a whole lot of natural organisms, like a ton, like millions per year, um, domesticated cats, I mean, and especially in like the Americas where there's no like analog to their like niche, their ecological niche. There's no like there's bobcats and things, but it's different, um, different like weight class, different like trophic level, different um, prey, sort like they, like. They they go after more things, I should say, um, and so like bringing them over as mousers served a great purpose for for humans. It, it helped with uh, disease control and and pest problems with rats, but it also was killing a lot of insects, for example, and a lot of other uh, small fauna.
1: So so. Um... Let's talk more about uh, insects. You cover a lot of really awesome insect content. Uh, what are some of the other uh, really interesting videos you've done and maybe more uh, enlightening videos that you've done on different insects on cannabis?
3: Sure. So I recently finished a video on Forodon cannabis, the cannabis aphid. And in it, because there's, a lot of, there's not a lot of information on it for obvious reasons, um, the next best thing that I could do was to give all the information I had on the cannabis aphid that's actually about the cannabis aphid and there's not much, and then kind of make some speculation about what are some other abilities that it might have based on uh, its closest relative, which I surmise to be the hops aphid. And part of that's because the cannabis, so cannabis and humulus hops are the most in the 10 genera of cannabis, of the cannabacy, I should say. Of the 10 genera in in the family cannabaceae, humulus and cannabis are the closest together based on phylogenetic studies. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, forodon, the genus of aphid, um, we have forodon humuli, which is the hops aphid or the hop aphid. And we have um, forodon cannabis of cannabis and forodon humuli feeds on two main hosts, hop, or hops and um, uh, prunus species, so like stone fruits, like nectarines and that kind of a thing. And they, they host alternate. Forodon cannabis, as far as we know, doesn't. And so, but we know that like physiologically because they come from the same genus, they probably have a lot of similarities, you know? And so one of them is like for forodon humuli, um, when they migrate, they have a sensitivity to like beta karyophyllene and they use that to um like kind of home in on their uh, hops targets for for a population dispersal when they're up in the air um and so perhaps this might also ring true for forward on cannabis because um they probably have pretty similar physiologies and they probably have see aphids and a lot of other insects when it comes to like pheromones and chemical signaling um, a lot of things are conserved so like you know if you have a chemical compound that's a volatile and it stimulates one species it might have overlap with other species in the same uh, genus or family with other um, sometimes multiple species that are like you know kind of at two ends like of the, of the, of the family, like one of them's way more primitive and one of them's way more modern evolutionarily, but they might still have very similar base chemical reactions. um, If that makes sense. So anyways, that video was really interesting. I really liked that video because I got to talk about the um, sort of speciation event of cannabis, because I thought that was a really important thing to mention. I wasn't going to say this sort of speculatory thing without, like, evidence that kind of, like, lends itself. You know what I mean?
1: I'm convinced, after all the consulting I've done, there's at least two different species that are really hitting cannabis hard. Because I've seen the bong aphids, which I think is the species you're referring to. It is. <coughs> and they have those two little horns on their butt.
3: Well, most aphids have cornicles. <coughs> yeah. But um there's, there's but two hops aphids. Or all Forodon, but also foradon cannabis and foradon humuli. They both have these antennal um, tubercles. They're called, and they're they're situated on the antennae, um, and they kind of look like little trichomes. In my video, I mentioned those as well, so that people can like watch out for them because it's one of the only sort of like semi diagnostic characteristics. Of course, cool. you know you, we've never documented hops aphid on cannabis, so. You can so, make that sort of contextual point. But technically, if a hops aphid were to adapt, because aphids are great at adapting, um, I guess technically then you wouldn't be able to tell the difference by physical visuals. You'd have to mount so it.
1: In Colorado, I've seen one that doesn't have those on the abdomen. and it's There different. are
3: some that don't.
1: Yeah, so this one looks, all even the nymphs, like all life stages look different with this one. I've gotten good pictures. Um, I sent some alcohol <coughs> alcohol uh, samples over to uh, Susan Wainwright-Evans. Um, I don't know whatever happened with that, but it, she has some.
3: Oh, yeah. No, and um, just in case I, I'm I'm just like totally make myself look uncredible or whatever, um, if I said all aphids do, I should have said most aphids do because you're totally right. There are some aphids where... Instead of having like cornicles that are like projections, they're kind of just like pores. So they've like kind of lost the, um, the projection or maybe they never developed it. I don't know which one came first in their evolutionary history, to be honest. Uh, maybe nobody does for that matter, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. There's also the rice root aphid, Ropalocyphum rufi abdominale, and um, it's originally from Japan. And kind of like the hops aphid I mentioned earlier, which has like a, a holocyclic cyclic or like a two sort of host um, life cycle. The rice root aphid does as well, but mostly in its native territory, um, where in which it goes from like grains like rice uh, to um, also prunus species, which is an interesting thing to consider. Um, and so the rice root aphid, uh, in uh, in in the Europe and also in, in indoor c- cultivation facilities, it doesn't tend to have this problem. And we, it's it's thought that this is because of an adaptation, to just like being totally clonal. Sometimes insect populations, um, they'll just especially if they have a tendency towards uh, parthenogenesis, then they'll they'll have populations that are just asexual. Um, there's a thrips species that is like that the onion thrips Um, there are there's like a sexual population and there's a couple of those and there's an asexual population that's pretty prominent and um, what it's it's interesting because it it's uh it's not the typical kind of parthenogenesis where um, a female will make like a female that's unfertilized will make a male mate with that male and then make fe- and then make males. Um, it's like the reverse. So like, there's one where um, they make, they make, so they make females if they are unfertilized and only if they're fertilized, they'll make um, males again. So that's how the sort of the clonal reproduction started with them. And it's thought that um, a symbiont uh, Wolbachia, which is in a lot of insects, actually, and typically modifies their um, sexual characteristics to be asexual. This is a common um, thing that happens in Wolbachia infections, actually. Um, that, that's thought to be what happened with the thrips. So, you know, symbiosis, right?
1: So what other insects, uh, aside from the aphids, have you done or uh, are- found uh, to be uh, pretty unique. It's interesting. You talked about onion thrips. A lot of people don't know that onion thrips are really the one that attacks cannabis, not Western flower thrips, which is often published.
3: I mean, I've seen Western flower thrips on cannabis myself, but you're right to say that, like, it's not enough to just say it is Western flower thrips, or it is of any other species. Like you have to, you want somebody to like, take a look. Um, if you're if you're unsure sometimes you know from the markings like I've seen bean thrips on cannabis for example and, I've, and when when I was up in Humboldt um, I saw orothrips which I which is not typically a pest but it's usually on oak and um, I saw those on cannabis and that was kind of fascinating
1: that's interesting I've never heard of that
3: yeah they have this like black white coloration so it makes them pretty conspicuous not they're not the only species that does though but
1: A lot of people don't know that uh, about 34% of thrips are actually predatory. And if you see uh, thrips and you have spider mites, a lot of times the thrips will feed on the spider mites as well, depending on the species.
3: Actually, yeah, you're totally right. Um, Western flower thrips is actually omnivorous. A lot of people don't know that. Um, They they will feed on predatory mite eggs even. Um, And predatory mites will... Like, if they sense the chemicals that come off of their thrips predator or their thrips prey, um, then they don't necessarily um, oviposit in the same way. Because, especially for predatory mites that are omnivorous themselves and feed on pollen, uh, where they might normally lay their eggs near pollen, they will not because they know that thrips will feed on the pollen and may also feed on their eggs uh western flower thrips will even feed on and we were talking about like competitiveness earlier in the podcast they'll feed on spider my eggs too um there was a really cool study that talked about uh this behavior um because what the researchers did I think it was this guy named Saito um he he cut the webbing away and he let the western flower thrips I believe um just kind of go ham and they totally fed on the eggs so without that webbing the spider mites would actually be getting eaten by thrips believe it or not
0: i got a question um you know because we talk about preventative and predator mites and predator insects and all all the time so what if you decided you wanted to do would you call it the western flower what do you call it the what the
1: the you wouldn't introduce those to get rid of mites they're just
0: no, no, no. But to introduce it, right, I guess, all right, let me just make it basic. My basic question is, if you keep indu- introducing predator insects into your environment over and over, or as a proactive measure, is that a good or a bad idea?
3: Totally contextual. But generally, I would say, yeah, like, that can be expensive. Um, like, I guess, from a holistic standpoint, it might not be the smartest move to use, like, bulk releases. You, there are products out there where you can use um, sort of a slow release of, like, predatory mites, for example, that, like, lasts over weeks. Um, and, like, yeah, applying them preventatively is almost always, like, the best option, like, for a lot of pests, like like thrips, for example, for broad mites. In my, in my experience, for broad mites and for russet mites, this is particularly true. Um, I had a I had a client in uh, Northern California. Um, we set up a, an IPM strategy wherein which he would apply Amblyseus swirskii, which is a type three B predatory mite. And if you want, I can go over what that means. Um, and that means it that. Feeds, it basically means it feeds on pollen and a bunch of other uh, insect pests. Whereas like persimilus mites are what are called a type one A. Which means they're specialists. So the closer you are to the earlier, uh, the, or the smaller number, the more specialized you are in Tetranychus on spider mites. And the more further you are out to like the three and the four, the more of a generalist you are. And so Amblyseius swirskii is a type three B, and the B means that it um it likes glabrous or smooth leaves. It does not like really trichomous uh, stems. In fact, they do poor. They do more poorly on tomato cultivars that are really hairy, really trichomous because the trichomes are equal opportunity killers. And over time, they just build up these toxins on their bodies as they walk along them and they die. Uh, Even the non-glandular trichomes. Yeah. So um, anyways, he was using these sachets of Swirskyi to preventively treat uh, western flower thrips and other thrips, uh, broad mites, russet mites white flies he wasn't getting all of these but he wanted to prevent them and it was it was it was economically viable for him to do this but he he slipped up he didn't he didn't go on the regimen and he let the sachets uh he didn't put out put out the sachets like for a couple of weeks longer than he should have and he got some russet mites and they just kind of came in but so like, so there's obviously kind of like an ambient russet mite population in his area, probably because it's a big cultivation space for cannabis. And, um, you know, they, russet mites and other small organisms that get caught up on the wind as aeroplankton. And then they kind of travel the airscape and then they fall down and, you know, hopefully onto what they need to. Um, russet mites, areophyidae in particular, are really adapt, really adapted to doing this um there's like over 5,000 species of russet mites and a bunch of them were found simply by putting them putting out like dish trays of water and then like putting them on skyscrapers and catching them as they fell out of the atmosphere. Um, so it's literally raining bugs a lot more than people think and, um, yeah, so these predatory mites, he would he got back on the schedule and they, they went away. He used a few bulk releases of the predatory mites to kind of get them in check. And then he started applying the sachets and now they're doing well. So yeah, so having what, uh, a proactive population is good.
1: So what is your go-to for russets?
3: These predatory mites, Amblyseus Uh My go-to for russets is... To preventively apply biocontrols if you can afford to do so, um, usually as sachets. Um, usually, depending on the distributor, I, I, you know, I don't always. It's not always like accurate what the distributor says. The how long this, how long the uh, packets will last you, because it's really dependent on your environment. If it's hotter or more humid or there's other factors, then it might cause the mites to like get out of the packet faster or something. Um, so I usually like to keep it really tight at like six weeks. Like some people say eight weeks. Some people say theirs last for 10 weeks. I, I like to say six weeks because, you know, it's worth your time. You know, if you feed, if you, uh, if you save one or two plants, like it basically pays for itself in cannabis terms anyways. So it's usually worth it to do that, and then they'll also feed on pollen. And so, if you um, if you grow like uh, ornamental peppers, or if you companion plant with um, other other plants that that produce a lot of the pollen, there's great research that shows Amblyseius swirskii and other predatory three, type three mites, like Neoscylis cucumeris, is another one. Um, they uh they'll feed on the pollen and they'll reproduce and they'll be very fecund and you'll get like in my experience and even in research reports i've definitely observed like a three times or even like a four times increase in population simply because of the pollen production um, that they're able to eat because see females they um they have to really wrangle their prey when you think about it they're like the same size (laughs) So it's like a tiger going after, like usually predators play it safe. They don't usually go after a fair fight because that's, that's what suckers do. That's a great way to get injured and die. Um, uh, You know, using technical like metaphors here, but like when the the females don't have to do that, they can just gorge themselves on protenaceous pollen and they can totally feed off of that and reproduce and, um, but their best diet is on a mixture of both. So they'll feed a bunch on pollen, and then they'll get the physiological desire to go out and get a blood meal, and then they will kind of have the best of both worlds. Meanwhile, you have a, a larger army to be garrisoned in your plants.
0: Does this equate at all to like, uh, like with ladybugs? Say you release ladybugs, and they don't, they don't, they leave if there's nothing to eat. So what you're saying is that this would be. A predator that you know, if you understand where I'm getting at in here, um, yeah, that, that has other sources of a way to stick around. So, if you companion plant with a certain pollen producing, uh, other you know, companion plants, so yeah, you know, I'm sorry to be redundant, but um, so I, 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 well, I'm so I, I think you would know what I'm asking. Um, I think so, yeah, there's like definitely
3: you can apply. Um other biocontrol agents preventatively. The thing is is that it's even more expensive if you can't like keep them sustained in your in your if you're doing it weekly, like that's a lot of money. Like there's a there's a floriculturalist I've worked with and um you know their biocontrol yeah, like their IPM biocontrol um like cost per year was like a hundred thousand dollars for like eight point five acres or so of cut flowers so that was egregious and we were able to bring that down um by like being more strategic with the usage and um you know kind of putting more out when we knew the seasonal so that's why crops getting so important like if you don't check your plants if you don't record uh your pests if you don't know what they are and if you, especially if you don't record when they come up and you don't have that like on some sort of a platform that's easy for you to reference. Like paper is fine, but you're probably not going to go through the files and like it's really hard to put it all together. But if you have like a like an app or something, then uh you know it's it can be way more concise. And then you can see these patterns and you'll know like, oh it's summer. Or you'll know it because other people are dealing with it or you've grown for so long you know. But like having the data for your specific location and not making generalizations is
0: um, usually worth the money. I think I was more getting at how you could keep the your predators, there on your property without leaving. You know, as what oh. I was getting at kind of thing. You know, because like we know, ladybugs and praying menace If you if you no longer have any pests, they go well, no, like, find pests. So like a them. like a
4: banker plant is more banker like yeah, what yeah. you're talking about, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think I thought that's what I, I thought What Matthew was talking about earlier, too, where you have other other plants that produce pollen so that the these particular predators want to stay around and eat pollen. Or that's what I was trying to make the connection to.
4: Yeah, yeah I think you, I, if I was following, I don't follow everything he says because I'm a computer guy, so some of this is over my head. But um, what I think he was just talking about the fact that they, they do eat both and, and that they might prefer different things when reproducing. Um, but what you're saying is that by, you know, it's kind of the idea of what we were talking about before is like banker plants where you, you grow plants that produce pollen that they can eat so that they, they can, their population can stay up essentially.
3: Absolutely. And yeah, so it's definitely related. Like I was talking about peppers as like a banker plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, pretty much, and, and like, I also have made a video, so I've made videos about day, which is one family of predatory mites. It probably, it, encom- it encompasses most of the f- predatory mites that live on the plants anyways, on the, um, on the foliage that, um, that are commercially available. And, um, yeah, they go from type one to type two to type three to type four. And um, they are, I've made videos that kind of explain what the different types are. And I've made videos about explaining um, different relationships and sort of nuanced things like how different pollen, get this, different pollen, the phenols and the uh, like, the polyphenols and the um, other sorts of uh, incidental pigmentation compounds in pollen Will actually benefit the predatory mites by kind of acting as like a UV uh, sunscreen, and um, a lot of these predatory mites are either blind or basically blind functionally, and so you know they don't like the sunlight. That's one of the things that they can detect a lot of the time, or they they have a very simple physiology, and so like if they get if it gets too dry, uh, then their eggs will die, or if it gets too dry then. They will die. And so um, having the right microclimate is important, but also like if you're able to give them uh, prophylactic pollen that benefits their UV protection, then they might be able to do better in sunnier conditions. And if they're already adapted to that area and then you give them even better uh, food source, then they'll do that much better. And like that's, those are the little bits of esoterica that I really find fascinating And it's not like a complex topic, like, you know, you can just say, like, give them good pollen and they'll perform better because of this reason without getting into all the technicalities. But like, most people don't know it because they don't know to look for it. And because that research is very new. And that's the kind of stuff I like to put in my videos, because I think it would help the average person to know that kind of a thing.
4: Absolutely. I think another thing that banker plants really help with is um, like keeping tabs on populations, because it can be difficult to find, you know, small, uh, fast moving insects under a microscope. um, If you're just kind of cruising about your grow, but if you have some banker plants that you've had in your grow for a little while that they've been able to sort of like, you know, colonize, uh, you know, then it's, you know, you, you at least have that as a reference. Or population even if you're having a hard time finding them crawling around especially That's for true. novices like like myself
3: it's definitely true um uh-huh. and then like even having uh even having different plants like um that will change like your soil microbiome and your the, the microbes on the in the phylosphere and the rhizosphere both the foliage and the soil and Um, You know, so that's definitely an aspect of it, too, that we're just kind of scratching the surface about.
5: So what are some of the other most
1: common um, insects you get asked about?
3: So definitely russet mites are a big one. Root aphids are a big one. The cannabis aphids getting a lot more heat. (laughs) There's a lot more problems with it in California. A lot of people have been hearing about it, uh, but it's in other parts of the United States. Um, I think the big scare is usually, for me, root aphids or russet mites, which is probably gonna be not surprising at all to anyone in the audience. Um, White flies for a long time, and perhaps recently, I think it will change because of the revelation I mentioned earlier about the uh, the lettuce chlorosis virus that transmits to cannabis. White flies weren't really a huge problem in my experience, you know I only have a section of the of the people who I talk to who cultivate cannabis, right? A very small fraction, um, and that's a huge ornamentals uh, pest. It's a huge residential pest, uh, so it wouldn't surprise me that it would become more more of a problem in um, in cannabis, partly because it's pretty much everywhere, and partly because um, uh biosecurity practices i mean uh you mentioned well one of you mentioned that you do computers and so like if you do any informational sec- information security or it or whatever um i know that like security through obscurity is the worst kind of security for one and for another like you know like the better s- my understanding is that The better your security, the worse the user interface is, generally speaking, because things that are naturally easy are going to be easier to exploit. And the same is true for um, biosecurity.
4: Yeah, it's really, it's very true. I mean, and, you know, like similarities is, you know, sort of what, you know, brought me to aquaponics is having, it you know, like a different outlet that wasn't like, you know, monitor output, basically. you know, and in, in interacting more with nature. But yeah, you know, it's absolutely true that you, you know, the, the simpler that you make the interface for the user, the easier it is to duplicate the interaction. Um, and that that's really, you know, it, it has to, there has to be a certain level of complexity. Um, so meeting it, you know, sort of requires uh, creativity, you know, like finding a user interface that's complex enough to be secure, but still usable is really kind of, you know, the problem that you're trying to, to solve in software all the time anyway. And, and really across yeah. the board, like even in like, you know, whether you're talking about like DPNs or remote access or... Uh, you know, logging in to check your email at work or preventing someone to log in and check their email at work, you know like all of those things come come into play all the time i I love that, yeah, I mean it's
3: I think it's both of those things that makes both of those topics um, something I really like. I really enjoy um, learning about physical security and also um, you know digital security. And I find that the the metaphors are very, very parallel because fundamentally we're talking about, in the abstract, we're talking about access and influence, essentially, right? And so whether we're talking about symbioses or whether we're talking about actual computer viruses or a Trojan or an exploit, you know, uh, plant pathogens produce or pests for that matter. I mean, if you're a big computer person, there's a ton of parallels, it'd be really easy for you to, to see, not you in particular, but for universal you, um, to see those parallels, like, you know, an aphid will be sucking on a plant. Um, and, uh, you know, it'll, in its saliva, it'll have toxins that it produces. And those toxins will have, some of them will be like phytohormones, and they'll cause the plant to curl in on itself, and the leaves will curl. Not all aphids do this. And not all aphids had the same effect on different plants because they have a different uh, operating system, right? And so, you know, the uh, the plants that curl over, well, they be- they might produce a pseudo gall. It's called, and that pseudo gall, well, it only require it only creates like a little aperture for the aphid to get in and out. And ladybugs might not be able to get in and eat them. And so that confers right. a
4: benefit, you know. And that's so, going to be it's like in the a hacking process, basically. You know, it's like the you know, if you want to look at it on a networking sort of metaphor, it's kind of you know, if you look at the, you know, again, not I don't want to, I don't want to label them the bad guys, but if you look at the aphids as you know, essentially Black the hackers that are that are trying to get in, right? That's what they're you know, ultimately trying to do. They're not trying to curl your leaves; they just want to eat. You know, like it's not, uh, you know, it's yeah. Not, but the right, yeah, the but the, I guess you could
3: say like the genetic code that is their software. Right. right. It and it's to
4: allow them to do that. Right. And they, they have to adapt in a way to be able to get in the same way. You know, you, you have to constantly have updates to your virus definitions on your computer because new ones come out all the time exploiting other simpler user interfaces or, you know, interfaces that haven't been patched up. And so the idea of making, you know, like making your environment as unfriendly as possible, non-user friendly to only the, uh, the stuff that you don't want in there, it is, can be really elaborate if you want it to be that. Obviously a lot of people don't go to that level, but if you think about it in terms of you want to put, you know, you want the are you sure button to pop up before you do anything, anytime you're, you're introducing something else, um, and, and ideally, you know, just like all your ports are full with, with good traffic that you're already logging. And, you know, there's really, uh, like no place for anything to get in. That's still going to be your, your ideal situation. There, there is no user interface and that's kind of the way that I look at, um, you know, uh, trying to build an ecosystem and, and you know, even though it, it takes time and it's, <laughs> Maybe not easy, but maintaining and and keeping an ecosystem is always going to be better um, than than allowing someone else. So the, the best thing that you can do for your network really is to hire the best employees that you can possibly have that are the most moral and pay them every penny that they ever want to have. And then you'll never have to change anything about any of your security, other than update it against external threats that have already been documented and probably aren't after you. So that, that's really kind of like, you wanna, you wanna nurture every good microbe and everything that is beneficial, not just like Google what eats russet mites once you already have russet mites. It's kind of like Googling, you know how do I stop a hacker from taking all my money after a hacker has already taken all of your money. Absolutely.
3: In fact, the, I, I wanna say two things because that was, such a, that was such a brilliant, I love using the computer metaphor because so many people, uh, I'm not gonna make a value judgment about it. I think it's great that people are computer literate. Um, I think it's an important thing for society as, as we go for, uh, further, things get more technological, but um, I think that's a great metaphor the metaphor even extends further, I think, when you consider like legacy code, like that's what all evolution basically is, it is what genetic code is, it's legacy code, it continues to build up on itself, sometimes there's some edits, sometimes there's some copy errors, sometimes there's some, um, and I'm of course not the first person to make this uh, metaphor, of course, I don't want to, I don't want anyone coming across, or thinking that I'm coming across as like, you know, smart for that. Uh, I'm not the first person
4: to do it. It's but, not trademarked or anything. Not right? trademarked,
3: right? But it's definitely yeah, it's definitely it. a good idea. It's definitely a cool metaphor. Um,
4: yeah, for sure.
3: And I think I wanted to say also that, um, oh, I forgot it. I lost it. Were you going to say something?
4: Um, no, just that, um, you know, I look, I totally understand what you're saying about it It being outdated code. And that that's the way that I look at it is if, you know, uh, your ecosystem has already been updated, um, then hopefully if a russet mite wanders into your garden, there's already something there to eat it before it ever reproduces. And that's really the exact way that, you know, that you approach virus security because there's no way that you can protect against viruses that aren't already known. But the best thing to do is to protect against every virus that is known and patch up every exploit and hole that exists in old code, or better yet, don't use old code.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And then also to not just use, um, you know, to just deny the things so that like you can't, like the things that would allow you to get a virus at all, or at least to suppress that. Um, I've known a few people and I've definitely, um, you know, I I, I really appreciate uh, giving people the opportunity to do this for their own work staff. If their work staff grows plants, if their work staff, especially if they cultivate cannabis, you know, uh, if you have the funds to do it, maybe you know, when you're out ordering your biocontrol agents, um, maybe order a few more for your workers and give them to them and let them use them so that they don't bring anything back into you. I think the cost-benefit analysis works for that one.
0: You're Absolutely. talking about dragging stuff from your property to somebody else's property.
3: Yeah. Well, essentially, if you're like buying like predatory mites, for example, oh, oh, okay. and um, you know you're going to buy them anyways, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that your work staff, if you know that a population of your work staff also grows cannabis and might also be liable as vectors, or they might get, or they might not get a pest, but they get a pest from the cultivation facility, go back home, and then come back with it. You know, like some Galapagos Island stuff, like, you know, it might be.
0: Well, it's just like, uh, all right, so that uh, you are kind of talking about what I was, what I thought you were talking about. Well, when we have greenhouses, yeah, when for anybody out there, you know, getting into the business and going to have greenhouses, you don't just let anybody and everybody walk into your greenhouse with their clothing. In fact, like you were saying, when you said employees, you're going to hit on a, operating procedure of mine when i had my greenhouse running you know and and the optimum setup for me would be that you walk in and you have a little tiny locker room you you know take a shower and you put on you know like uh coveralls that you work in the greenhouse and then when you leave
5: did you cut off or
3: Roger, you made it. Oh, interest. Okay. Uh, we can't hear you, or, is, or is, are you done? Or?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. I got muted somehow. I thought I was on. Uh, I, I, so what did you last hear? I'm sorry I got muted. Um, what I was getting at is the fact that, like an operating procedure we've done in our greenhouses for produce for a long time. You know, you don't allow any and everybody to walk through your greenhouse and and bring in, you know, uh, insects or, you know, mildew or whatever. And yep. a good way to do that for people that are out there wanting to get into the hemp industry or anything else is to make sure you have a room where people it, you could even go this far. And I, I wouldn't have a problem doing this. You go. To
1: uh, it, the um, you want to have double doors and you want to have positive air pressure and make sure that you have all that um, set up, you know, as part of your biosecurity for any facility, but um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So what are, uh, what are some of the other our, um, big issues you're seeing? You talked about rice root aphids. How would you go about getting rid of those?
3: Uh, one of the things that a lot of people overlook uh, because they're not familiar with the root aphid physiology or how it how its life cycle operates, is that it it goes on the cannabis, sure, but it also feeds on many other plants, particularly prunus, but also and in my video that I mentioned, I mentioned a bunch of different species. Um, one of the big ones is like wheat. It's a big it's a big pest. Also, like if you're in places where they grow. A lot of wheat where they grow a lot of rye you know where uh rye is rye one of them now now, oats yeah barley yeah um but like where they grow a lot of these grain plants um rice root aphid was a problem for them way before they were a problem for cannabis um at least documented especially like recently And so, if you're able to cull or or recognize some of those host plants, then get rid of them. Unless they're doing something for you that's like worth it, worth the liable risk, which is fine. Like, I know people who are very attached to their ornamentals or they're very attached to certain plants because they provide food for the people like living on the farm or because um, any number of reasons. I'm not gonna, you know, it's not my job necessarily to tell people. Like what they need to do, just that what they could do. And, like, if that's, you know, if that's worth their cost benefit analysis, like, no problem, then that's part of the plan. But, like, you know, ideally you wouldn't, ideally you wouldn't keep the non necessary host plants in the area unless there was some reason you couldn't. Of course, outside of your own property, there's not a whole lot you can do except for collaborate, hopefully, with neighbors. Sometimes you can build a good rapport with them. And you know, just having that teamwork, um, if you're able to foster that connectedness with like agriculturalists to your left and your right, then that can be really useful. And I've seen that in places where that's been really great. And I've seen it in place I've seen places where they really don't talk with each other and they'll always be like, Oh man, that guy, you know, he constantly gets whatever and you know, or powdery mildew or botrytis or something, and like they can't really affect that, you know. Giant mass of powdery mildew or 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 uh, inoculum that's right across their fence line.
5: That
3: was a bit of a tangent, I suppose.
1: No, 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 it's fine. I, they've been one of the harder things. I've, I've had luck with Basana or Bavaria Basania, and then um, uh, nematodes, and then H uh, uh, miles uh, combo seems to work relatively well, but.
3: What was that first part?
1: Oh, that uh, Bavaria basania.
3: Oh and yeah, then, uh, the, the Bavaria Bass-
1: stratiolaelaps, or what is it? Stratiolaelaps schematis or most people know it as H miles, and then um, uh, nematodes. But what, what are what are you know that that's what I've had really good luck with.
3: Yeah, I definitely have had the best uh, luck with the Bouveria Bassiana doing like a soil drench and um, just really making sure. And you can, I mean, like, like you can get really creative too. Um, If you're an indoor facility, um, you can, you know, like you can, you can exploit another aspect of their physiology, which is their heat intolerance. Most insects are exotherms exotherms are unable to, generally speaking, uh, regulate their internal body temperature like we can through like sweating and things like that. And so um, aphids, like root rice root aphids, there are research reports and in my video, I go over these life table um, aspects that like basically uh, after like three degrees Celsius, like they, they start to have molting problems like it just gets too hot for them. Like when they're exposed to heat that's really that bad, they're gonna to try to find a place to cool off. And maybe they're able to find a microclimate where they're able to subsist. But if you're trying to like clear out a room and there's no plants or food there, you, you can use this as a strategy to make it uh, worse for them. Ultraviolet radiation is also uh, not great for them. Although aphids, some aphids are more susceptible than others. But I guess my point is that like, you can use combinations of like um, high temperature and like a biocontrol agent like buveria bassiana. And maybe even if you turn out the humidity and the heat then you can really make things great for buveria because as, a, as an ascomycete fungus, um, if I understand, if I remember correctly, buveria bassiana does a lot better over a certain humidity threshold, like a lot of fungi do. And the increased heat might also help with um, colonization. Uvaria basiana also exists as an endophyte too in uh, many plants, so that's another uh, really cool aspect of its use.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that was an endophyte as well. That's really cool. Is that how it was isolated to begin with, or
3: I don't believe so. I think it was it was first no. I think it was first isolated as the causal agent of white muscardine disease. And um, I think that it was on, If I remember my bug lore. I think that it was on um, silkworms or that might've been a different um, pathogen. But uh, the, the, the one that's in products where the isolate is GHA, that stands for grasshopper active. And it was um, isolated, I think first isolated from a culture that was on, Diabrotica spotted cucumber beetle and then they they reared it on grasshoppers a bunch of times in order to like adapt it to grasshoppers because that was the original the uh, the people who were making this particular isolate that's what they wanted to utilize it for uh but they ended up finding that it that it worked on a whole bunch of different um uh plants or i'm sorry of uh insects that's really cool i didn't know
1: that well, is there any uh, any other ones you think uh, that maybe keep you up at night, or you're terrified of, or ones that you're kind of waiting to see uh, really take off on the industry, or ones that people should be aware of?
3: I did uh, I did already mention the spotted lantern fly, but I guess it bears repeating, um, and I do have a video coming out on it. I uh, I know of research reports that show. Uh, Lycorma delicatula, the spotted lanternfly, feeding on hemp in China in the 80s and in the 40s. And there's no reason why that would necessarily be true now. Um, and as it becomes an invasive in the United States of America, it's already cost like double digit millions of dollars of damage and is expected to do a lot more and especially more in places where viticulture so growing grapes and um i think avocados are another problem but cannabis is the big problem too and in these hemp fields like it's just i think it's going to be a big problem for a lot of people and i we haven't seen it yet so it's i i think the responsible thing to say is that it's still speculation but i think it's reasonable speculation based on research if that makes sense
1: absolutely absolutely
3: There's also not a whole lot of biocontrol agents. So like there's definitely like chemicals that you could use, but nothing you'd want to use on cannabis. But we do use it in other crops. So that's kind of the other thing is that specifically for cannabis, you know, some of those compounds are just not going to be like you just cannot use them. And so we will have that problem for people trying to grow, um, you know, organically as they should.
1: That's really, really, really crazy. So uh, what, are, what are some of the upcoming uh, videos and content you got coming up? You, you talked about a couple of the topics, but what are some of the other stuff you're working on?
3: Um, I have a, I recently finished a, a manuscript for a journal that's coming out in, um, in, a, in, a, in a plant science journal, a phytopathology journal. Um that's on the cannabis pests of the United States of America. Uh microbial and arthropodal pests it was the name was in the title. That's what it was. And in it I kind of talk about I talk about some incidental pests, um, or at least I did in my first couple of drafts. I think that I took some of them out now that I think about it. But there are some like there are some pests that are like kind of regional to the United States. Um, and like different parts of the United States that I've seen, like one of them is the buffalo tree hopper, and um, there's stick. There's two sticktocephala species. One of them is the stictocephala bisonia, which is the the um, the bison, uh, the buffalo tree hopper. Um, and then the other one is stictocephala, uh finahi was it? Or no, that's a sharpshooter. But anyways, uh, the point is that one of them has like a point. Or one of them has like two points that look like horns, and the other one's got like a smooth head. And in the videos, you can see, and I've been seeing them a lot in the West Coast in California. Um, I also saw like a similar kind of species that was like brown a lot, but and there's no color morph not that I know of for the for the um, for the for the two species. So that was probably a different species that's either unrecorded or. It's part of some journal that I've never seen before, and uh, the big problem with it is that it's a lot smaller than the spotted lanternfly. It's like, like I don't know, like six, six millimeters, six centimeters, No, like two centimeters long or something, as an adult. And they feed on the plant, but they don't cause a whole lot of damage. They do, they do when they go to um, lay their eggs. So they have this like, this uh, egg laying like organ this ovipositor, and they, it's like a blade. It's actually like sharp enough that they can like cut into the plant tissue and they can lay their eggs. And when they do that, they cause this like gnarly scar and that can cause branches to break. And this usually happens in like the autumn and winter, or late summer even, uh, which is now. Um, And I know people who are currently suffering from these pests that are, kind of like an incidental pest, not really a problem in other agricultural crops for the most part, but except for grapes maybe. Um, but yeah, they're a problem here in, in cannabis, uh, cultivation. Um,
1: yeah. Awesome. Um, so, uh, are you, uh, how can people find more about your YouTube channel and, uh, and more about some of the content i know you also do talks as well you have a a, a talk on your youtube channel a whole length uh, ipm talk
3: yeah i haven't updated i haven't done the like xanthanol live which is usually just the um the video from my instagram live but um i do have that uh people who want to find my content i have a i have a patreon for people who want to support some of my um, some of my videos I do it out of the kindness of my heart, and that's always going to happen. But if people want to help out with that, they can, and I'm willing to like uh, help them out one on one with that sort of a thing, or like make special content for people who donate a lot more. If they really want to like influence what kind of content comes out, if they really want to see a particular thing addressed, and that's one way to do that. I have a treatise that I've written that's a living document that's constantly being updated on cannabis pests and pathogens that I've observed both in academic literature as well as my own observations and I always make sure to get identification work and pictures that sort of a thing to make sure it's accurate. Um, That's also available on my Patreon or you can buy it uh, from me. I also... um, have my science communication channel, Xenthanol and my science communication Instagram account, Sync Angel, and I go over this sort of stuff. A lot of people I've seeing in the chat, in the YouTube chat anyways, um, a lot of people were kind of aware of that already, it seemed. I definitely recognize some of the users, so it's kind of cool to see that um, interaction in the comments. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, I mostly put most of my content on those two social media accounts. YouTube and Instagram. And uh, if you have any problems, I am you know, I try to be available. It's hard to be everywhere at once, but um, I think it's really important to support people who are cultivating. So yeah. If you have a small problem that I might be able to answer in a in a couple of words or something, then you know, try your luck. If not, I'll let you know. And maybe we should talk more in a professional way. But
1: awesome. Well, that's, uh, thanks so much for coming on we'd love to have you on again for another time maybe talk about fungal fungal infections next time i know i've seen a lot of septoria this year across the country so
3: yeah that would be awesome i really enjoyed talking with you guys i, I liked the uh i liked the the breadth of
0: questions they were very they really made you think
1: yeah no, i know we like got the really deep and, and heady there for a minute
0: I like the idea that you um, you brought up the fact that you'll help people out, but then you have a professional side and that's where we're all going at this point. We we've been helping out for a long time and we've got our crafts down and, and now it's time to, we'll help you out with a few questions, but if it gets into something in depth, you know, there's a professional side to it. And, I always, I, I appreciate
3: that too. I always like to say that if you if your business plan is not better than a Google search, you have a bad business plan.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It also kind of depends on what, what the intention is, you know, like there's, you know, plenty of like, you know, people that just want help, you know, like maybe growing their own first crop or something. Exactly. It's way different than somebody who's like, Hey, you should like come write, you know, these SOPs or can I just, can I just borrow your SOPs uh, to start my, you know, tier two rent grow. That yeah, I've never grown anything before, but I'd really just like to use all your stuff.
0: Well, you get these folks that have yeah. never grown anything, and they come in and they want to say, "I'm going to start up grow with ten thousand plants. I'm getting in the industry. What do I do? <laughs> what what do I need? You know that kind of well, thing." I'm going to that's spend the...
1: two point five million dollars and not know I need to switch the plants to twelve twelve. Seen
0: that? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's it's just crazy. it's a, like, I, I love the best thing is. Uh, best thing i heard in the last few months uh, even though it's, it's getting redundant now but w- when they said oklahoma was like the wild west <laughs> that's pretty funny yeah and it is i mean you know but they yeah, yeah.
1: so righty well uh, i don't want to tie up your whole evening thanks so much for joining us and we'd love to have you on again another time
3: thanks for having me i really appreciate it and uh yeah anyone has any questions just feel free to reach out i i appreciate that you guys are similar that's really cool awesome
4: yeah feel free to hang out dude man you know yeah, don't run yeah. Off if you don't yeah. Want to hang out and shoot the shit yeah pretty um, much Marty. every panelist besides me and steve started out as guests and that, that's <laughs> that's how
0: it went and they haven't been able to get rid of me so here i am. <laughs>
4: keep trying I keep trying i'm just kidding <laughs>
1: Um,
0: uh, Mar- Marty, what's up with you and your grow? Uh, how you been? <laughs> Marty but right on cue. Hit,
4: man. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, so story. what's up with me? Let's see. Um, like everything should be here. Let's, yeah. Tomorrow's Friday, right? Yeah. So everything will be here tomorrow when I get off work to start. Uh, like completely. Um, doing the exterior of the flower room in the garage so that'll be a 20 by 20 basically so that'll be pretty cool so I got everything from like well we still have to cut holes in the wall for all the ventilation and stuff but um, all the electricals in all the lights are in so now we're just gonna um basically uh seal everything up um put up all the fans, all the electricals put in for the fans and lights and everything. So that's all done. So once that goes in, then we can build the aquaponic system and start it cycling. Um, I'm trying to get Kaven to sell me some media. So hopefully he, he'll he email me. I don't know if he's watching, but if you guys watched uh, a few weeks ago, when, or was that last week? I don't know. We had Kaven on from, what is it? Symbiotic? Symbiotic, yeah, symbiotic yeah. yeah, so he was a cool guest had a had a lot of fun um on that show okay. as well if you want to check that out he talked about some different media he had that was that he makes himself there in oklahoma right Yep. Thank, thanks again
1: i think i think matt's got to run um oh, yeah. or at least in chat um thanks
0: to be again
3: honest i can us, to be honest i can keep going i like okay. i mean like i don't know what the standard operating procedure is so you can
0: hang out and, oh, and we're going to talk and you can inject and ask questions of yeah. us you know yeah for sure
1: so i just didn't didn't uh i just misinterpreted your
4: chat that's all um uh, that's so yeah to... um so yeah uh so that'll come together then i can put together aquaponics system like we talked about Throw some plans in it that's gonna be exciting i'm trying to get some media from Kevin. that's who i was just trying to poke at live um <laughs> but uh yeah uh so hopefully he talked about this different media because obviously there's um hydrogen, which he uh, is round and is expensive And so he talked about how they set up this uh, way to make their own because they have tons of clay there locally. So they make it right in Oklahoma. And um, so I'm trying to ship him or trying to get him to ship me a shit ton of this media. And so he's just working on getting the shipping for me. So he's probably working very hard. I'm just poking him for no reason other than my own entertainment.
0: It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool because, yeah, it's just about having red clay and putting it in the kiln.
4: Yeah, he says he doesn't normally. He only sells it with his system, so maybe we can leverage him into, you know, making it a a available to sell. I think if it's that much better and it's sourced in the United States, and uh, you know, can be even competitive in cost, uh, then you know, shit, why not? Uh, I think
0: one of the coolest things was he said that his, sorry, because it basically comes out to be an expanded clay again, but he's (laughs) claim he made a claim that his. His contained minerals even after being fired, you know, you know, which you know, I don't know, because hydrogen we yeah, um, you know is inert. hydrogen's inert. So right,
1: but that could be a problem though, because you don't have any control over leach rate and
0: Well, yes. Yes.
1: I don't know. To me that it means I don't have control over nutrients. The, the,
0: I think you might want to just look at it and see it'd be like a thing to do a test thing uh like maybe marty for you to you know I, hey i love the idea with it because i've got a bunch of clay and you you saw our interaction i'm going well you know i've been thinking about making bricks out of mine but i would think if you fired it in a kiln it would kill everything but i don't know i mean yeah, i mean i not' claiming I don't know that he's game, getting sure. minerals even out
4: Uh-oh. on the after side so I'm- i understand what steve's saying too is that you know you don't you don't control the lead rate and I kind of know already what I'm going to get with hydrogen, but there was a time when I didn't know what I was going to get from hydratin, you know, and it, and it, it's not completely ideal, you know? So he talked about how, because his is elongated, it has more surface area. So it's more shaped like a bean instead of completely round. So I do think that there are, there are just cool aspects of it. And, and like I said, there was a time where I just, you know, said, fuck it, I'm going to buy a shitload of hydrogen and lava rock and that's going to be my media. And uh, I didn't I didn't know anything about any of that then, other than just shit that I'd read online. So, you know, for me, uh, it's not you know it, it's a leap, but I'm, you know it's a leap that I'm willing to take if if it all works out. I mean, obviously, if it's a big pain in the butt for him to ship it here, it's going to be stupid expensive for whatever reason. Then I'll probably just do lava rock and hydrogen. But uh, so that's really the last thing uh, that I have to purchase is media for the, the flower room, and then um, we'll we'll have all that set up and online. So that's that's going to be awesome. And we yeah. have
1: a we have a class coming up at your place, right?
4: Yeah. So I'm hoping to at least have some plants in for a few weeks uh, by the time you guys get here. So if I can get it online uh, this weekend or even the beginning of next week. Uh, then I'll, I'll have plants in it right away because I've got got some ready to go. And then uh, I'm trying to decide on uh, my layout for the um, for the bedroom because I actually have just a shit ton of headspace. I have a fucking 20 foot ceiling uh, on one side of my shop. So I'm in the second story of the shop right now in the office. the second story of the shop is above the garage or what would be the flower room and then uh next to me behind this wall is the the head space of the of the high bay shop so it you know it's kind of an interesting thing normally you know you're you're fighting against head height and now i need to find a way to utilize it so you know trying to decide on you know if i want to do something vertical or how how exactly I wanna I want to tackle that. So that's that's been kind of interesting uh, to get into. But um, it's the nursery is going to be, you know, going to be online by the time of the class too. That's gonna be um, you know, it's a smaller overall system. So and I, I have a lot of like the tanks and stuff that I'll set up for some different uh, cloning apparatuses that I want to try out for cloning and aquaponics. So I, I'll have a few different types of media beds and um, test runs at first that I'll be using to decide what I will do long term. And then I'll build out the rest of the nursery with those. So it'll be a little bit of a process to get it completely online. Um, but, uh, you know, like I, I talked about in, in observing your, your own garden being the most accurate form of data. Um, you you have to do it in, in different ways in order to observe differences. So um, if they all work about the same, then I can just pick my favorite and it'll be a good problem to have. Uh, but the way I look at it is if, if I do it four different ways in four different media beds and even one of them turns out to be any remarkable percentage higher, um, then I can build out the rest like that. So that's kind of the the overall plan so I want to I want to get all those set up and online and those won't be large systems they'll be small independent systems so they'll be easy to to get set up once we now that we've gotten a lot of the other harder stuff done like getting um, all the electrical switched over to 220 and stuff like that so that's what I'm doing shit that's not growing plants which is a little frustrating but it's, it's preparation for growing a shitload of plants which makes it tolerable
1: sweet so what about you roger what you this oh, isn't uh funny. Dude, we're 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 doing the reflection. same
3: oh sorry i was just gonna say i was gonna i do actually have somebody who wants to um to hang out so i will dip out but i really enjoyed and i'm just gonna say uh see you next time
4: all right cool man it
0: was how great you having you people? matthew yeah. i can't wait to talk to you again do I yeah, tell people great. how to find you one more time
1: before you take off
0: sure yeah so um like the uh
3: like the picture hopefully says and it's not reversed um you can find me on instagram at SyncAngel angel and on youtube uh on zenthanol it's the same channel uh account that i was using to interact in the live chat and i will talk to you guys later
1: awesome thank you <coughs> all right go ahead roger
0: Oh well, I guess you know, kind of. It's kind of funny how Marty touched on that. Um, uh, we're we're we've talked a lot the last couple of days, and our indoor grow is gonna be up. Um, oh, I just I just get dropped. You're here. Oh, I'm here. Okay. Wow, the whole everything just dropped out. Okay, on my screen. Oh, I okay there. That's it good, is. Just go ahead.
1: Right.
0: Um, so so we're um, that's well, weird. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we've decided to have, a, in, in, uh, and, and, uh, we're going to build a, a, 10 by a four foot by a, t- a 10 foot, um, a dual root zone bed and have some, um, ha- and do some pots and natural farming type live soil, uh, grows beds on the, on the sides so that we can do some comparisons. So not just to say that one way is better than the other right off the bat in our grow environment, um, and so we're really excited about that. And uh, and uh, I got a whole uh, whole thing. I've been working on a concept for uh, building some uh, building LED lights, um, and I've done a lot of research on it the past two or three months. And uh, we're going to try some of that and compare it with some of the other big big lighting companies uh, at possibly a very good, uh, a very, well, very much less money spent. And, uh, so we're, yeah, we're going to do that same thing. Marty says he's doing four different mediums and that's a great thing. I, I have to comment on that. I think it's a great thing for experimentation. And if you want to, uh, you pass along your knowledge and share it with other people that you actually use different ways of growing and methods and mediums at this point where Marty's doing one method, but with four different mediums. Okay. So we're going to do a, we're going to do an indoor climate control grow room with, uh, much in the same kind of space that Marty's talking about where, and that's a nice space, 20 by 20. That's cool. That you could really, (laughs) yeah, you could produce in that thing. Um, but, but the same kind of space area and do, and do different types of grows, uh and and also we're going to be experimenting with different led lamps so that's something that's going to be coming up in the next you know from now to the next six months or whatever you know when we're actually into a deep into a grow so i'm real happy to talk about that and uh of course ours is going to be hemp you know um and other than that uh we're just we're just gearing up trying to we just got our first cool day. It's really nice outside right now. It's probably in the 60s, you know, probably 60-something degrees. And uh, next tomorrow is supposed to be uh, in the high 70s. Of course, next week we're going to get back up in the 90s for a week. So it's kind of kicking up and down but it's really a nice time where i live because everything i'm growing really starts to kick ass right now and actually that those couple of three or four warm days again next week will probably you know uh, cause my you know my 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 vegetables and all to bulk up even more and suck up more you know cool. liquid and, and feed and and it'll be great but then we're, we're on the cooling down period and i gotta say it we have had we went from winter to summer and uh, we just went through a hurricane and i am glad that i'm feeling cool air when i walk outside
1: <laughs> that's good uh, i've just been uh, working on getting everything going i'll be off to the kentucky state university um uh aquaponics association. aquaponics association conference this weekend I'll be speaking there on Sunday, um, so I'll be over there talking this weekend. That'll be a lot of fun, and then uh, just working on some other stuff that we're not quite ready to share yet. And um, <laughs> yeah, just staying very, very busy, doing lots of number crunching, filling out visas, all kinds of fun stuff. So we'll have some cool stuff to share before too long. Um, sooner than later. Don't worry. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, just uh, trying to think if there's anything I'm working on that I can tell you guys about. Not really at the moment. <laughs> um, but we'll have some cool stuff soon, like I said. Um, all right, well, we'll wrap things up. Again, check out Xenthanol. Uh, his YouTube channel is super informative on beneficial on insects, pests, and beneficials, both. Um, and then uh, check out Roger why don't you tell them
0: where your stuff is yeah I'm at ilovegrowingmarijuana.com I'm on Facebook Instagram Cannabuzz although I haven't really worked a lot with Cannabuzz and a little bit on Instagram Facebook's the best way to get a hold of me where I could you know share with you and I also want to shout out from Marty for AP Meds at you know uh, on, on uh, uh, in, uh, well he's uh, on YouTube he's on Facebook and he's also patreon On, um, uh, yep. patreon yep.
1: patreon yeah yep. 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 and then check out uh jr token over at Cannabuzz if you're looking for an alternative for instagram um it's definitely a great option um you know you don't get banned over there they're super chill <laughs> and it's, it's designed around that whole plot that whole concept so
0: yeah and he's a pretty cool down-to-earth kind of guy too so i like
1: yep. that all righty and uh thanks a lot tara lee live for uh, for dropping uh, links and stuff in the chat, holding down the chat. I appreciate it. And um, we'll catch you guys again next week. Next week we have Easy Clone and then we have a gentleman who's gonna be talking to us about using thermal imaging combined with other advanced uh, uh, imaging software and imaging methods um, to tell deficiencies in plants before they ever show visually. It's gonna be pretty cool. So we'll have uh, some really cool content next week. We'll catch you guys again soon. Cheers.
5: Good night.